Hello, dudes, dudettes, duders, and everything in between, and welcome to the Hollywood Fishbowl. Now, this intro was supposed to be razor thin, super short, but fate, it seems, had another plan. You know what? I'm not putting this one on fate. I'm putting this one on our guest, Mr. John Booker, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first, I would like to say a sincere thank you to all of the guests who came on for our miniseries on burlesque. That means a thank you to Vixen DeVille, a thank you to Kirby Labrea, a thank you to Lily Von Stupp, and a thank you to Nikita Bitch Project. You are all awesome, and we greatly appreciate your insight, your wisdom, your stories, and your thoughts. Thank you for sharing them with me and with our audience. John Booker, man, what are you trying to do to me? Today was not a normal day. Okay, okay, well, let's back up a little bit. John Booker is a PhD in mythology. The dude is a doctor of storytelling. Uh, Lots of insight. We're getting into a series on storytelling. That's why he's the guest. And we wanted to start the series out with the question of why. Why do we have stories? What, what, What is the purpose? What do they serve in our society? Uh, We talk a great deal on this topic, and, uh, you know, you earn a doctorate. His thoughts are really robust, so I would say, you know, just go ahead and listen to the whole episode. You will not be disappointed. In fact, I think you will be uh, thoroughly engaged and enthralled and rewarded for your time. How did John mess up my entire day today? He talks about uh, how he went into a coffee shop. I won't tell the story, but the, the, the story ends with uh, get up early and do your homework. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to be a little bit more like John Booker today. I'm going to see if it works for me. Got up at 5 o'clock, went to the cafe at 6 in the morning, a, a donut shop down in Alhambra, Alhambra, however you say it. And I'm sitting there jamming on my computer, sipping my tea, and this this uh, gentleman comes in, a, a black man about 50 years old, and he's he's with a woman. And they're they're in a bad way. And he asks me if I if he can use my phone. And I, you know, we sit down at a table and uh, I give him my phone and he starts doing some speaker calls. And his car was impounded. Now the woman is kind of hovering around him. Um, looking very worried, looking very, very stressed out. Uh, so he makes a call. The, the impound company, he's $40 short of a, like a $400 bill, but they won't give him his truck back. Now I'm thinking this is really lousy of them because it's like this could be the guy's livelihood. This, this $40 for a truck that they don't own could mean the difference between him having a job and losing a job. Uh, there's more info about these people. So they, they, all they had, the only earthly possession they had was a plastic bag, a clear plastic bag uh, that was filled with prescription pill bottles and a pack of Newports. In his hand, he had, he had all the cash, a big wad of cash kind of crumbled up as if he'd been balling it in his fist for the last who knows how long, maybe overnight. It's possible they didn't sleep at all. And, and his, his, the woman was, was around him and after after about 20 minutes of him calling all the different people he thought he could get 20 bucks from or 40 bucks from whatever it was i asked you know like what's going on are you guys are you guys okay you guys you guys together and she put she put his hand on his shoulder and she kissed his head and she spoke she's it was very hard to understand her i'm i'm imagining uh lots years of years of heavy drug addiction and 
the the prescription pills made me think that they were trying to kick it that neither of them were in a good way but that they were on prescriptions instead of street drugs and that they had their their pharmacopoeia with them pointed to something good and she said he barely intelligible this is all i got out of it was she she said she kept saying like he he loves me i love him he loves me so much and i love him i love him i just love him so much and she said, we're engaged. And she showed me her ring. And it was like, you know, the kind of ring that you would buy. Not at CVS, but, you know, it was metal. But $10, $15. And she said, we're engaged. We're engaged. And we're going to get we're gonna get married. We're going to get married. And we're engaged. And he said, she's the, you know, she's, she's the only one who, who accepts me for who I am. Anyway, they kept calling and kept calling. I had to go. I had something else to catch up to. That we'll we'll get to that something else. And we walked outside. I, I was going. No, no, no. That's not what happened next. He he took another booth, and I went back to writing. And he just kept sitting there and thinking, trying to think of more people. And she fell asleep at the table. And as she was sleeping, she had night terrors and started not screaming, but it was clear that she was screaming in her dream. So I don't know, maybe I'm a sucker. I handed the guy 40 bucks. Maybe I'm an asshole because I didn't just give him the 40 bucks right away once I put together what was going on. I don't know. But I gave him 40 bucks and he, he was deeply appreciative and, you know, he walked me outside. I was heading back to my car. And I said to him, Oh, we didn't know what's going on. Are you okay? And he said, no, we're trying, we're trying. I said, is she, is she okay? I saw you have that bag. I saw your bag. Is she okay? And he started crying. He just started crying. And then he, he stopped. He pulled it back together. He said, I'm, I'm writing a book. It's called These Are My Hands. And it's about realizing that I had hands. That not everybody has hands. That you can use your hands to build anything and you can use your hands to talk to God so you can say anything and you can do anything with your hands. He said, I have hands. And then he said, thank you. And I left. So John Booker, that was my morning. But that morning... Uh, had a ripple effect throughout the day. So part of the day was uh, meeting a friend. I met met a friend. Uh, she's a, an opera singer. And we were going to go out, hang out for the day. So that's what we did. Um, started a little later than we planned. Uh, got some coffee, you know, the normal stuff, and ended up at uh, Griffith Park. We parked at the Great Theater parking lot and we started walking up to see the observatory because uh, that's where she wanted to see it for La La Land, whatever that is. I was going there because of The Terminator, uh, which is which is a classic film shot at the observatory. Anyway, we were heading up, we were walking up and there's a hairpin turn that we were approaching and this car comes around the hairpin turn 60 miles an hour, which is not the right speed for a hairpin turn jumps up on the curb, uh, jumps, vaults onto the curb, through the fence, 
we jump out of the way. The car is about five, ten feet away from us as we're jumping. Car smashes into a fence. The fence doesn't explode, but it does the fence car version of an explosion. And uh, the fence smashes into her hip, knocks her down into the street. Uh, some debris hits my calf. Uh chaos after that a good 30 minute I, it, it felt like maybe three or five minutes but if i i was taking pictures throughout and it, it was a good 30 minutes between then and when we i think got loaded into an ambulance um they spent the rest of the day in the emergency room patching her up um driver was intoxicated we believe. Uh, no confirmation on that quite yet. Um, so yeah, John, I, g- I gave your I gave your approach to writing a shot. Um, don't know how many pages I finished. I think I did revisions on three or five. Uh, but one of the most interesting days of my life. So uh, sincere thank you to John. Booker, if I called you Butcher, I apologize. It's been a very long day, and I am fading fast. I just wanted to get this in before uh, before the day was out. These are two different stories. There's the one of the, the, the junkies who are trying to clean up and were in a bad way when I met them. There's the other one that is also touched by drug use. Um, the smell of smoke from his car. Of, of cannabis as he was driving. So, don't know what the metaphor is. Don't know what the answer is. Um, but but that's how we're kicking off our series on storytelling. From now on, John Booker is all yours. Drops. Morpheus, Morpheus is, is fighting, fighting Neo. Neo. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Fishbowl. This is the first episode in a series of four on storytelling, screenwriting, bookmaking, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and our guest today is... John Booker. So excited to be with you, Jesse. I'm not only someone who is excited to be on the podcast, I'm actually a fan of the podcast. Can I extend an olive branch your way? Well, please. Morpheus is done fighting Neo. I am a, I'm a fan of, of your podcast, the one you stop. do with uh, Mr. Jeremy Casper. If, stop. Wait, why should I stop? Okay, go here's, ahead. Here's what I'll say. If you want me to stop, just make a shittier podcast, and <laughs> then we'll ease off that thought. I really do enjoy it. Thank I, you. I appreciate it. I um, know you from your public speaking engagements was, uh, you know, kind of, not enchanted, but uh, enchanted. The, 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 you know, heteronormative male version of enchanted <laughs> by your work. Well, I've only partially done uh, done my job then because, you know, my full goal mm-hmm. is to have everyone romantically attracted to me on top of, of being, you know, uh, uh, just friends. Lofty so, goals. Well, yeah, let's, it's lofty let's build, goals, let's so. build, let's build right, the repertoire even sounds further good. right here. So <laughs> how do you want to be framed? I mean, I know yeah. what you do, but what yeah. they don't. You know, I'm a storyteller okay. is really what I am. and. My life got a lot simpler when I stopped trying to narrow that down to a single job description of being a writer or a speaker or a producer or a director. And I began to embrace this idea of story as an ecosystem 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes in this ecosystem of story, I I have different areas that I spend time in. So sometimes I'll go camp out in the the, the deserts of script writing, or sometimes I'll go to the mountains of, of, of book writing, mm-hmm. uh, or, or the now, streams of producing. Why, why'd you have to throw the screenplays in the desert? <laughs> if, you've, cold, my man. if you've ever written a screenplay, you know that's exactly no, it, the place that, uh, that those have to you be. You get like an adrenaline rush from yeah. the first idea, and then it is hours and hours and hours and days and days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks. It's uh, a lonely business yeah, man it's a yeah. lonely business yeah you a good writer i think i am a great writer i'm not afraid to say it i think okay. one of the problems that um many writers have is first many writers have a, a difficult time calling themselves writers a lot of people say well I, I i you know write and do this and granted if you're someone who has not sat down in front of the the computer and, and cranked anything out in the last you know six months mm-hmm. yeah maybe you shouldn't be calling yourself a writer but if you're someone who commits time to your craft and you're someone who believes that you have something to say to the world and you're putting that sort of time in, don't be afraid to call yourself a writer. Okay. And even if you're not making money off of it, it's... What yeah. do you what, what do you reckon? It's more important to say something or to make money? I, I can't yeah. even imagine where you're going to land on this hardball question. Uh, no, it's far more important to make money than anything else. I mean, let's, all right, you let's heard it here first, folks. I think we're done, actually. No, you know the the interesting thing is. Most people over the course of their lives will do things to make money that have zero to do with their passions. Mm-hmm. And that is just fine. You look at some of the greatest writers, the greatest artists throughout history, and they're not necessarily people that made a living off of their work. I like to look at look at it like this. Um, I treat my creative work, my writing, like a little baby, right? Okay. For the first... 18 years or so. So you give it a little a little hit of whiskey when it gets little, a obnoxious. Exactly, is, that, is that what you that's mean? That's exactly what I'm talking about, Jesse. And for the first 18 years, mm-hmm. I take care of the baby, okay? Yep. I don't ask that baby to pay my rent. I don't ask ah, that baby yep, yep, to, yep, yep, yep. to do anything for me. I take care of the baby. I feed it. I nurture it. I clothe it. I teach it. I spend time with it. Mm-hmm. And then... Later on down the line, that that baby may decide to start doing things for me. Yep. There's a maturity that will grow in that. But we would never expect that baby to take care of us, you know, two years in. That's that's ridiculous. So I think you treat your work differently when you look at it like that infant that you need yep. to take care of. A multi-decade you know, a investment in a, in a living creature. Now, how do you navigate those early years when that baby is just a money vacuum yeah. and uh, all it does is... is piss and shit on you yeah or, or, how do or you, keep like, you up all night yeah like what do you do there how do you how do you make the ends meet how did you yeah. get yourself started in in baby raising well jesse i write because i cannot not write i would do this whether i ever made a dime mm-hmm. on it just because i can't not do it there is something within me that desires so deeply to tell yeah. stories that i just can't can't not do it the fact that i get paid to do it is is a wonderful bonus but i would do it no matter what and i think this is is an important distinction uh for 
people that really have a passion for writing, people that really have a passion for telling stories, would you do it if you knew you'd never make a dime on it? Because if you can say, yeah, I would still do it, you're the type of person that probably is going to have some success in this world because you get that monetary thing out of the way. That's uh, not so much to you, but to uh, the those keeping score at home, that's one of the things about writing is you have no excuse. It's the cost of a piece of paper and a pencil. Yeah. Like you can, yeah. it's so the the startup cost is through the floor. There's just yeah. there is none. There's none. There's really no excuse. And and for me, my life changed when it came to writing about I don't know, maybe about seven years ago, mm-hmm. maybe eight years ago. I I was working on a production uh, here in Los Angeles that was a reality TV uh, type production, and I was just doing a couple of days working with this this project. What, were you as a writer or as a PA? Is like it, what? Were, no, no, it was a is a, a like type a, of producer on okay, uh, on it. Yeah, story massaging or in, in that realm. In, in reality TV, we call it producer, but really what you're doing is you're crafting the uh, the story. Once you um, have the footage. Once you, once you have the footage. Okay. Well, and, and also. So maybe some ideas on how you can yeah, push you, you know, let's, certain people let's, in a direction. Uh, let's tell that person that so-and-so said something terrible about them, yeah, you know, yeah. those type things. So, um, But I was up early in the morning, mm-hmm. and I stopped in to get uh, you know some coffee. And I'm in this coffee bean, and I noticed it's 6 a.m., mm-hmm. and there are all these people with their laptops sitting in there writing at 6 a.m. And I started to think, you know... If this business is built on commitment, if there's a long line of people waiting to get their chance at success in this business, these people should be in line ahead of me. Like if, if it's a meritocracy, like we would like it to be. Right. Then they, they should be ahead yeah, of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're here every morning, 6 a.m. doing this. They and, get the upvote. Yeah. And I didn't like that. I didn't want there to be any reason. I hate the meritocracy too. <laughs> I do too. Um, but I didn't want there to be any reason that somebody mm-hmm. would be in, ahead of me in that line. So I started getting up and writing every day from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. because I didn't want there to be anybody that had a better uh, justification than I did for success in this industry. And that really began to change me. Now, I had to start going to bed a little earlier but it's a beautiful thing to write in the morning. And I thought, I'm not a morning person. I can't do this at all. No one's a morning it's a person. Right? It's, it's, it's a learnable skill. It's a learnable skill. Because once you learn that skill, it actually becomes your time. Nobody's yep. calling you yep. on the phone yep. between yep. 6 a.m. Oh, and 8 a.m. Oh, man, you're preaching to the choir. I'm yeah. in bed at 9.30, 10 o'clock. Yeah, that's, like, that's me. I love to read, you know, get in bed, 9.30, yep. 10 o'clock, read, get up early the next morning. Nobody's bothering me in that time. And it, it becomes like getting to eat your dessert first thing in the morning. Yep. And when I go to bed that night, no matter what else happens that day, I go to bed realizing I've accomplished something, and it's the best feeling. I um, got a dream story for you. Tell me. Now, do you want to talk about romantic entanglement? You were tell in my me. dreams last oh, night, and I'm going to tell you how. Goal fulfilled. I had this I had this dream that we were recording, but we had to stop every 20 minutes to do something. Now, this podcast is the thing I love more than anything. And in the, like we, what was it? We had to ride a roller coaster or, so, or something <laughs> like that. And then you did a gigantic beer bong, and you were flat out on the floor. <laughs> I was like, how the shit are we supposed to record the rest of this? 
So that's that's a side effect of going to bed early is you remember your dreams. At least that's been my Absolutely. experience. No, that's you know that's uh, that that's worth the entire you, price of admission right there. Do you get answers in your dreams? Do oh, you yeah. get your stories? In- I, I keep a. Um, uh, a pad and a pen right by my bed, uh, and it acts as a dream journal. And okay. whenever I wake up in the middle of the night or as soon as I wake up in the morning, if I've dreamed anything I can remember, I try and make note of it. Not necessarily because Drops. I get specific stories from it. However, I, I, I find my subconscious, my psyche, is trying to teach me things. I, as part of my uh, PhD program, took classes mm-hmm. in dreams, uh, where you look at the mythology of dreams and, and sort of the connection, you know, from a Jungian sense between the waking life and the subconscious life in dreams. And I believe, as Jung did, that every character in your dream is you. For- so I was I was the one flat out on the You beer were the bong. one flat out uh, with the beer bug. There's That's some part of telling. you that, that that was you, you know, in the dream. Um it but is, I believe that. It is that's the thing is these these recordings are very precious to me and I have high anxiety about wasting like it's an hour, an hour and twenty that I have with someone who's smarter than me and has studied something that I'll never study in great, great detail. So I do have uh, considerable anxiety that I'm going to be flat out like a moron. It's true. What do you want from me? I'm I'm, I'm naked before you. I'm laying myself out on the table. And, ay, ay, ay. Uh, this is off great. the rails. Should that's we ding the, the No, let's keep going. Let's. Uh, what was the thought I had? The 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 oh the dreaming. Yeah. Do you reckon that's where editing came from? Yeah, I think so. I I think I believe editing in some ways is a product of. Um, the way we solve problems in our head. Mm-hmm. You know, we we tend to skip to the highlights of a situation mm-hmm. and we tend to uh, just take those and then try and make sense of that. But honestly, that's why we tell stories at all. And that is uh, why that phone is... Uh, is yours on no, airplane no, or mine, anywhere Mine's close. airplane. That was... Over there. Moving on. Yeah, no worries. I believe that's why we tell stories at all is we have this deep desire to try and find some sort of meaning in our lives. Now, I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell, who famously once said that people are not so much looking for meaning in their lives as much as they're looking for the experience of being alive. What does it mean to live? And I think there's some truth to that, that we want to reconcile meaning in our lives, but sometimes our lives just don't seem to have, you know, meaning. There's there's not something we can point to to say, say this is why this happened. It's not all cause and effect. That I'm having, I don't disagree with what you're saying, mm-hmm. but I'm having, as I get older, I feel that time does move faster. I'm having a lot more trouble uh, relying on experiential living yeah. and am much, much more concerned with, did I create something today that will be useful for someone tomorrow? Yeah. yeah. So big questions we're asking. Yeah. Well, and, and I think we want our lives to have meaning in that we want to be seen, we want to be understood, we want to be people whose lives mattered. Absolutely. I'd, I'd much rather... My thoughts are useful to other people, yeah. and I hey, congratulate me if they are. <laughs> <'Cause>, 
It means a lot. Why wouldn't it? <laughs> well, absolutely. I think sometimes, you know, especially when we're in the business of writing and storytelling and, uh, you know, the, the world of speculative fiction, if you will, we sometimes become too cool to talk about the universal things that every human being wants and relates to. We all want people to like us. We all want people to accept us. We all want to feel like we're part of the tribe. And sometimes, especially in this highly individualistic culture, we act like we're above that and no one is above that. Why do you reckon we we pretend that we're not? Like it, it seems pretty obvious yeah. in every step that we're taking, that that's the thing. Yeah. But why, what, why is there the veneer? Yeah. I, I think most people have a great deal of difficulty coming to terms uh, with, with who they are. And so many of us try and craft a narrative about ourselves that we don't have to respond to the reactions of others. And we tell that story so often that we need to believe it. And so I think it, it actually is a self-protective function, you know, that we're, we, we, we feel like if we tell others that we are highly individualistic and we don't really need the rest of the tribe, um, that maybe we'll believe it enough so when the, the tribe doesn't like something that we do, we're not as hurt by that but reaction. Every, every inch of armor is just further alienating. And That's right. That's so... Why can't everybody just know and understand that and behave accordingly? <laughs> well, the, the what's wrong with you all out there? I'm sick of this. You know, th this is really a funny thing to me because everyone assumes that human beings act rationally, and we are not rational creatures. Not at all. We're emotional creatures, and we make up our minds based on our emotions, and then we go and look for logic to try and support how we feel. Not the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Not the opposite. It, it, it ties a bit into confirmation bias, I oh, suppose. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, it it is. We this is this is the great disease of humanity that we all uh, suffer from, and it's not even so much that we need to learn how to transcend that as much as we need to recognize that's, that's how we're operating. Yeah, that that's step one. And yeah. as soon as you see the the patterns emerging, then they become much less powerful. That's right. That's right. It, that's the thing is, I think we become a culture that's consumed with um, quick fixes to solve whatever we deem to be problems within ourselves, rather than becoming in touch with those problems in a way that gets to the deeper, more core woundings we have that those problems are really just expressions of. Then I'm going to take this moment to say directly to our audience, I was not kidding about the low cost of entry for writing and the fact that everybody might, well, write. So if you feel like that's an inkling that you have, do it. Yeah. Quit absolutely. farting around, <laughs> knuckleheads. Why, why do we have stories? That's the big question I want to address. Yeah. And what's your short answer for that? I have an answer. Yeah. I want you to give yours. Then I'm going to give you mine. Okay. And then you're going to wonder why you went to school for <laughs> eight years for this. I believe we tell stories Number one, because it makes us feel less alone in the universe. Okay. We have a deep, deep desire to, to know that other people get us and that we have something shared between us. How, number number okay. two, I'm going to give you three and then you, you respond okay. to whichever one on. you let want. Me so, let me jot down some okay. notes while you talk. Okay. So, so number one is I, I believe we, we wish to, to feel less alone. Number two... 
I believe that we are trying to establish some sort of meaning in our lives. And I believe stories give us the opportunity to create meaning out of the things that seem so random that mm-hmm. happen in our existence. We might call that like a, um, a mesh of relevance. Absolutely. All Absolutely. Right. Third and finally, I believe we tell stories so that we might actually be able to solve some of the problems that plague us. In other words, our stories serve as psychological petri dishes for fixing the things that cause us so much psychological torment. If I see the way that Indiana Jones solves a problem on screen Mm -hmm. in some small psychological way, it tells me, and maybe I too can solve my problem. It may be through a different method. It may be uh, in some very different way, but it speaks to me of, of the truth that, that problems can be solved. Okay, so number three was my number one, and number two was my number two. Oh, beautiful. Forget it. Forget it. <laughs> I, I was, love that. I was thinking there's like the old thing about the salesman. You ask him, um, how do you sell something? And he says, you don't. You make the person think they're, they want to buy. Like you, and that's what stories are. They just are right. like you can bypass a decade of, of mistakes by planting a metaphor in the back of someone's head and, yeah. and then it grows into an a, a error avoided yeah. as, as quickly instead of telling them to do it this way, yeah. which nobody wants to be told. Quick question. Um, there's a term that has been rattling around in my head. I want to know if this is a common term or if it's something you think you made or that I also think I made. <laughs> um, intellectual technology. Is mm, that a common term yeah. or is that one that you... I don't know. Because I don't hear, I didn't hear yeah. anyone else say it until I heard you say it on, yeah. on that interview that you were doing. I, I, but I think would, about it every day. Yeah. I am not aware of anyone else who has used the term. I hesitate to say I invented it, although I don't know of anyone else who's yeah. used it. Um, but that concept. That's not the hill you're going to die right, on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if someone comes, you know, because we all become these products of all these other things we've heard and, and read. And yeah. sometimes, sometimes I'll be honest with you, I have trouble sometimes remembering um, I just what the source of something I didn't was. know if that was like common yeah. parlance or if that was something. Not to my knowledge. Okay, I, n- mine yeah. neither, but it's yeah. freaking all I think about <laughs> is how how we... How how just intellectual technology has exploded in the last twenty years in yeah. ways that I don't think any we I, we obviously we don't understand it and there was yeah. no way to predict this this type of, of yeah. development in, in thought yeah oh I just broke my arm patting myself on the back <laughs> I didn't mean it like that I just no, mean that yeah. the the way we think and the way we access information it yeah. just like it, it changed into something we've never seen yeah. before in the last twenty it it really is such a different period in human history than we've ever known um, because our relationship to technology uh, has continued to grow alongside our scientific our scientific development of how we understand the universe. And in many ways, our intelligence quotient has continued to rise based on what we've been able to scientifically and through philosophy and psychology learn about the world at the same time that technology continues to rapidly advance. Yeah. And typically... You know, you you might have a big technological development uh, once every couple of hundred years, you know, in in history. Um, But now 
it, it's almost like if there's not some game-changing technology every year when the new iPhone comes out, we're, we're bored. We're, we're disinterested. Well, I mean, you've peeked behind the curtain of story enough to know that that's part of the marketing narrative. <laughs> but is. but it is it is an explosion yeah. of technology and and uh, yeah. and rewiring that. What did, what did I call it? The mesh of relevance. <laughs> the mesh of relevance. Yeah. Well, I, and I'll say this too, Jesse. Hit I'm me. I'm working right now on a project that uh, we're we're shooting a pilot for. Um, around the idea of American mythology. And it's, what what are these ideas? Is this connected to your VR work, or is this totally separate? Totally separate. Okay. Yeah, totally separate. But the idea behind this show is that we are very interested in what are the stories we tell in the society that are just not true? You know, what What are the, the mythologies that we all believe in or act like we believe in? So I'll give you, for for example, the first episode is on money. We, That's a big agreement we've all made with. Oh, absolutely. We all agree that this paper that we, we pass around to each other has meaning and that it has value. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, we we philosophically believe that no matter what problems face us, in American culture, we believe our wealth will save us. Yes. But we're wrong. Our wealth will not be what well, saves us. That was ominous. <laughs> Let's put some things on the what will save us column before we move on too far. But I absolutely agree with you. It's, yeah. it's a, a, a narrative, an agreed upon narrative. Yeah. It's an agreed upon narrative that I really do believe is wrong. And if we continue to embrace that as one of our top value narratives that it'll take us over the cliff. Now you ask the question, so what, what are some things, you know, that will save us? Um, Empathy, I think what will save us when we begin to value the experience of others beyond what makes a buck that That can save us is uh, one of the things I was thinking about before you came in was that stories are kind of like these, uh, empathy juice packs that'll refresh yeah. like it'll it'll just boost your empathy quotient well there's a guy in virtual reality named chris milk that called virtual reality the ultimate empathy machine in other words you put this headset on and you are literally oh, yeah, entering yeah. someone else's experience and that psychological or, or neurologically the brain is set up in that environment to create a great deal of empathy when we have those experiences and we don't have anything that separates us from the experience. The enthusiasm is infectious. I'm uh, betting on the other horse. And <laughs> in 10 years, if VR uh, creates a more empathetic and less isolated society, I owe you a lunch. <laughs> okay, it's a deal. <laughs> it's a deal. I, I here's Here's the thing. I do believe that virtual reality has the potential to create a more empathetic society. Now, Absolutely. Hey, I'm not going to put that in front of the camera. <laughs> Absolutely, it has the potential. Yeah. Facebook well, had a lot of potential too, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I, I do, but this is... To this boost is, empathy, I mean. Right, yeah. This is to say, you know, that you could look at the auto, automobile and say, mm-hmm. the automobile has the potential to get us farther than we've ever gone or to end our lives immediately. I mean, mm-hmm. all these things are tools and it's going to depend on what we do with them. However, the potential in medical technology, the the potential in education, I believe all these things outweigh the the addiction of someone who is, is probably going to get stuck in a virtual reality loop and never want to come out. 
Um, Don't take it yeah. the wrong way. I'm, I'm not saying that we should no, go I back and, back erase and forth on these Facebook. I, I think we need to go all in on our destinies. And yeah. uh, I'm not I'm not pushing back against the existence of it. And I do agree with you on the potential. Uh, how do you reckon we should we can we can realize that potential? Yeah. What where where you put hedging your bets? You know, th- this again is where there are people far more intelligent than I that have ideas about. Oh yeah, so. you're a specialist in hysteria <laughs> stories, not fixing the entire planet. <laughs> but I will tell you one of the things that I've heard uh, from someone that I, I wrote a book last year called Storytelling for Virtual Reality and. One of the reasons I wrote that book was I was really interested in hearing from the people who were the most uh, advanced thinkers about Mm -hmm. virtual reality. And I've learned one of the best ways to learn about something really deeply is to write a book about it. Uh, You you will learn a ton about that subject. Because you're not getting published if you don't (laughs) have a deep knowledge. That's right. So I, I interviewed um, uh, one really deep thinker uh, about virtual reality for the book, and he said, imagine that a volumetric virtual reality camera had existed in your grandparents' time, mm-hmm. and that you filmed their 75th anniversary party. And it's 10, 15 years after they've both died and passed on. Would you have any interest in going back and having that experience to feel like you're in the same room with your grandparents and to be in that environment and party? I would. Let's. Can we shortcut yeah. a minute? What sure. if a volumetric camera had been in Auschwitz? Yeah. How different? Absolutely. How different could the world possibly be right now if? Yeah. Just drop them in there. Yeah. Yeah. Please continue. No, I, let's go big. Yeah, let's, let's go big. I love it. Um, you know, but but let's go big and then let's go small. But yeah, also Be- yeah, because yeah, imagine um, you know, for for the parent whose child has has grown up and become an adult now to be able to go back in and relive a child's seventh birthday party and really feel like you're there and, and have that experience of being in that environment again. These are to me some of the most um uh, alluring possibilities of virtual reality that do create empathy. We remember what matters in life well, in looking to the past. Absolutely. I was uh, I was 16 when my great-grandfather died. I met him a couple times when I was a kid. I didn't have the context to ask him any questions yeah. about his life. There's so much I want to know about yeah. what his day-to-day was like now. And yeah. it's unknowable. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, it, it's also potentially the thing that could be our undoing on this planet. Uh, if you watch Westworld, then you yeah. probably have seen, you know, what the possibilities are. of. Uh, <sighs> We're a resourceful <laughs> lot. There is no our undoing. We- well, maybe. I, I, I'm not I'm not 100% convinced that we don't have the potential to uh, to remove ourselves from uh, from the universe, but I, think, I, I hope it's not the case. I think we're a bit too selfish for that. Uh, like it's there possible. Are people it's who'd possible. rather be alive than not. <laughs> it's possible. Um, but I, I keep a healthy... Um, a healthy eye on those who, um, as they say in the Batman films, some some men just want to watch the world burn. And um, I, I think there are a few of those walking amongst us. And so I do try and keep a healthy eye on what, what they might do yeah. with some of this technology. I mean, for every, for every Einstein, there is somebody who just wants to watch the world burn. But that's like 
one and one, and then there are 98 in between those two. Right. Agreed. Who just want it to be a normal day every Agreed. time they wake up. But it just takes the one to set the world on fire. Yeah, it just takes know? the one to solve relativity. <laughs> I hit the mic for you oh, one more time. I know you time, did. Right? I know you did. I watch for this. <laughs> That's the um, happiest moment in my life is when the guest pops. I will get another mic stand, I swear to God. But but to go back to, you know, sort of the core of your original question and to tie it into this, why do we tell stories? I don't know of a better way to get at these questions and these issues than story. In some ways... Um, do you talk to God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Now, I might have different names uh, than you know than uh, some people do. Um, I, I I might you know refer to God as the ultimate uh, the ultimate reality or the the ground of being. You know, I'm, I don't see God as you know a bearded guy in the sky yeah, yeah, or anything yeah. like that. But I do believe. Um, again, I, I'm I'm a trained Jungian mythologist. I believe in a collective unconscious. I believe in something that connects us all to everything. To me, there's something that does connect everything in the world to everything else in the world. I don't believe that you know we're living in a simulation or, or, okay. or something like that. Um, I, I'm fascinated by those who have posited those ideas. I'm fascinated by uh, Ray Kurzweil's work and um, you know those who believe in uh, eternalists and people like that. But I I do believe that there is some ground of being that we're col- uh, connected to this greater collective unconscious that that is real. Now, as you're doing your deep dive, so when I was a kid, I, you know, like we go to church and you take the gospel yeah. as gospel, and yeah. then you get a little bit older and you do the, the deep dive into mythology and yeah. get highly suspicious of the gospel. <laughs> right, right. And then you come back or as you learn more. Yeah. You do, I've also come back around. Yeah. I don't know how to define God, yeah. but I'm pretty sure that, well, that it, there's something. <laughs> it, and honestly, one of the biggest, you know, problems that I, I believe we have in religion is we we tend to insist on literalizing the metaphor. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's where I think we get into trouble. That's where, you know, one person reads uh, the book of Genesis from the Bible and says, this is history. The world is 6,000 years old. And another person reads it and says, this is actually a poem because I know exactly what it's like to, to, to see that apple over there and deeply desire that apple yep. and there be yep. a snake that's calling me towards it. I know exactly what that's like. You know what story in the the Noah's story yeah. was, you know, you know the basic beats of it. I, I'm finally doing the Bible cover to cover. Yeah. What blew my mind in that story, what I did not see coming was at the end when God regrets it yeah sets his bow down and promises never to do that again to people yeah that's just like it made my head my brain pop out of my skull that that yeah. like the bible leaves room for god to fuck up <laughs> and feel horrible yeah. about it was yeah Anyway, no, absolutely. There, there's a confrontation between God and Moses actually uh, in the uh, Old Testament, or mm-hmm. the um, uh, you know, if you're Jewish, you wouldn't refer to it, of course, as the Old Testament. But um, 
in the Old Testament, there is a confrontation between Moses and God where God's going to wipe you know, everyone off the face of the earth once uh, the children of Israel have been constructing this golden calf. And God says, I'm, I'm going to start over with you, Moses. Mm-hmm. I'm going to wipe everyone else off the face of the earth. And Moses says, no, you're not going to do it. And God says, what do you mean? I'm God. I can do anything yeah. I want. And he says, no, you're not going to do it because you made a covenant with Abraham that you wouldn't destroy you know, the earth again. Um, and the, the interesting phrasing there is it says, and God repented. That's a beautiful wow. little twist. That's beautiful. Right? Because I haven't gotten to that story it, yet. It's powerful, you know, when you read it and it sort of it sort of um disarms the idea that so many people have about God. Um it's beautiful. God sits yeah. down with for dinner with certain groups right. and then other groups they can't even see him because they'll be right. destroyed so he can only appear as a cloud. Yeah. It's really amazing the complexity of this metaphor. Absolutely. There, there, there are some stories that are are too important to be entrusted to anything else other than metaphor. It belongs in a museum. <laughs> it does. That's my Indiana Jones uh, speak is speaking. But it, it's true. Stories like that we we can't literalize because we we literally do a disservice to the story. We make the story less impactful uh, than it really is. But the metaphor is much more powerful than any sort of literal history that we want to ascribe to it. So I'm someone who finds a great deal of meaning and beauty in going back to, uh, you know, the the Bible and mm-hmm. the, the Bhagavad Gita and all these ancient texts that for centuries and centuries and millennia have provided wisdom to human beings that were just like me trying to figure out what is this whole thing about? What does it mean? Yep, there's a reason these texts have endured so many millennia. That's right. And yeah, I got sick of of not knowing what was between those yeah. covers. Yeah. And the problem with any any of this, whether it's religion or mythology or yeah. whatever, is is really fundamentalism. When fundamentalism gets involved, whether it's in religion, politics, whatever it is, it is destructive. And so I think we're we're living in an age and a culture right now that we're seeing polarization over people that insist on fundamentalism about religion, about politics. When the world that we live in is it's 50 shades of gray and I've been waiting all podcast to make that uh, that comparison in that statement because really at the end of the day all truth comes from the movie 50 shades of gray. There's a quote. Take it. Put that's it on your be refrigerator. On the Instagram. Yes. Yep, yeah, that's going to be yeah. our get All ready, truth. John, John yeah. Booker. <laughs> All truth. Are you talking about the the movies or the novels? I'm totally or kidding. Just totally, the, the, totally kidding. The idea that we exist in a gradient, not in in black and white. Yeah, I, I I think I am someone who likes to hold in one hand that everything is on the gradient, mm-hmm. and then I'm someone who holds on the other hand that there is such a thing as absolute truth. Well, can't we strive towards absolute Absolutely. truth while, while we yeah. live on the gradient? Well, the thing is, yeah, most things are on the gradient. But for me, if you hurt a child, that's absolute truth that that's wrong. Yeah. You know, there, there's no there's no shades of gray about yeah. that. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, to yeah, me, that's yeah. wrong. So I, I believe in absolute truth. And I, I know we've went through seasons philosophically that people have sort of poo-pooed that idea that everything is cultural. Um, 
but I do believe in some larger universal truths. And they basically come down to going back to this idea about the Bible, mm-hmm. about you know the truths of don't hurt yourself and don't hurt other people. That, that's kind of the two big uh, lanes I like to swim in yep. is, you know, don't do something that's going to be harmful to myself, my yep, body, yep, yep. my, my consciousness, you know, my, um, my being in the world and don't make your life any more difficult. Don't do anything that's going to hurt someone else. Not to labor this metaphor to the point of breaking, but, uh, can the vehicle be called? What can I build? Yeah. That's I like it. I like okay, it. Okay, so we can we can yeah, keep. I like it. <laughs> putting straws on this camel's no, back. I like it, and I'll give yeah. you one more. I have a because it's it's very possible to live a passive life to to not hurt or not yeah. be hurt. But if you're not building at the same time, yeah, have you existed at all? I have a dear friend who often says that any jackass can can kick down a barn, but it mm-hmm. takes a real special one to build one. That's sweet. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, you know? I I really think there is. This is, deconstruction is such an important part of life and of our journey, but if you stop there and that's all your life is ever about is deconstruction, I think you've missed something. We've got to be in the business of reconstruction and finding something that's real that we can build. What's delicious about fundament- fundamentalism? Why is it, what's appealing? Well, it, it's very appealing to our brains because our brains, they're in the, the decision-making business. They want to know things are black and white. Our brains love black and the white. The straightest line to an answer, yeah. Absolutely. The, our, our brains function that way. Mm-hmm. You know, Our brains are looking for there to be clarity. That's another trick of the brain is binary, is yes. a kind of a fib. Yeah, it, it's, that, it's, it's easy, it's a but huge it's huge mythology. Kind uh, of a fib. Anyway, please continue. No, it, it, I think it's a really important point, though. Is we we often um, try so desperately to make things binary. Yeah, we we want there to be it's either this or this, and there can be nothing in between because our brains tell us that's where safety is. You know, and I think we have thousands of years of evolution that that. Uh, advanced our brains in that way because that kept us safe. You know what? If I hear something rumbling in the bushes over there, it's probably going to hurt me. I'm running. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, Oh no, there's a reason for binary reaction. Yeah. yeah, You're going to live or you're going to die depending on how you react. Yes, absolutely. But we advance beyond that. Yes. You know, our consciousness moves to a point beyond that, that we, we can actually um, recognize those shades of gray and I'll tell you, these are harder stories to tell, but they're far more interesting. There, you know, are a number of different types of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's myths, there's fables, there's legends, and actually, every one of these different types of stories has slightly different nuances of what makes it important, or. or I dare I even say rules for that type of storytelling. Yeah. So one of the more interesting ones to me are well, fables. I'd, I'd say that you're not putting rules on the type of story. You're just defining the word so we yeah. can talk about it efficiently. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that's exactly it. So fables are really interesting because fables are very binary. Mm-hmm. Uh, the you know Aesop told all these fables, and we have stories of the the town mouse and the country mouse. We have stories of the the, the tortoise and the hare. Right? Yeah, They're yeah, very yeah, binary yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. stories. Well, here's the interesting thing. 
in the culture that, that Aesop's offering a lot of these fables, these were not meant to necessarily be binary in dividing me from you. Yeah. All fables were meant to be something where a person looked and said, you know what? There's two sides of me. Mm-hmm. There's a tortoise that lives in me and a hare that lives in me. And this story is about these two sides inside of me that, that are, are competing. Yeah. Or, or the town mouse and the country mouse. These, these are two different parts of my psyche. And that was understood at those times. It wasn't meant to divide me from you and say, you're the tortoise, I'm the hare. Um, you know, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. We have made it binary externally, but it actually was moving towards the type of consciousness we have today, which is the complexities inside ourselves, which go beyond the binary. And that's intellectual technology right there. It's intellectual technology. Developing a, a, a new way to perceive self and letting it seep into the the conscious mind over, over hundreds of years. That's, that is it. And there there is so much work left to be done. But at the same time, look how far we've come. And I, I, in some ways, I know we have done some very destructive things as human beings on this planet. But well, in other ways, not, that's not a stretch of a set. Like you, you said it like, yeah, like we. Well, <laughs> like it, I should I, guess, but uh, well, because yeah, I'm no. going to offset it by saying I'm also very proud of what we've done. Including the destruction? Not, not of okay. the destruction, but I'm just saying, I think sometimes we look and we see only the destruction. Um, if you've ever been to a large city and looked at the, the, the skyscrapers and the landscape, sometimes I look um, at that. Whenever I visit New York, I look at some of those tall buildings and I, I say, I can't believe that we have as, as a species have figured out how to do this. Mm-hmm. That's amazing to me. It speaks to our our ability to imagine what could be. And, and I don't think we give that enough credit sometimes. We're, I, may I? Yes, please. Okay. Please. Step right in. That's not a that's not a flaw, that's a feature. Yeah. Uh let's talk racism, yeah. which is really bad. Yeah. Or the same thing as tribalism, like if we band together, we can survive longer. Racism is just tribalism in an outdated period. Like we don't have the need for that feature anymore, but we'd be dead without that feature programmed into us. The the idea that we... uh, The the destruction, the bad things is where our brain is going to go because uh, we are genetically predisposed to find the problems and try to fi- figure out solutions to them. It's it's um, uh, your brain's an unreliable narrator is yep. what I'm saying. So yes. when it looks all bad and terrible, yeah. you need to dig a little deeper and look at the numbers, not just the feeling of what you're experiencing in that moment. Absolutely. I, I, I really have begun to understand that in a new way, especially in the last uh, year and a half. Um, I, like many other people, um, I was really devastated by the election of our current president. And I, I know this is not a political podcast. I'm no, not no, trying no. to make it one. But me, it, me as a human being, my entire identity took a real hit because I had really believed that human beings... Um, at the end of the day would in my opinion would do the right thing you know that they they wouldn't elect someone who didn't who seemed to be unstable in many ways to a position of leadership over us all and that was that was really jarring to me to um recognize now over the last year and a half 
I've really begun to come to this place that recognizes a higher view of, of the entire situation. It's not to say that lots of bad things couldn't happen in the tenure of one person, mm-hmm. but at some point, Donald Trump will no longer be president. There, there's going to be a future. I'm not sold on that sentence yet. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm only saying that half joking. Yeah. Um, well, please he'll, continue. He'll, he'll die. Or, or, he will die yeah. eventually. Even yeah. after eight years, he's, yeah. he's not stopping until he's underground. I, I agree. But even no matter what, there will come a day, I believe, that he won't be president. That's, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. Reliable. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that being the case, mm-hmm. zooming out on history, um, what are we going to do moving forward after that? Is is that going to be a catalyst for things just going, you know, downhill or uphill? When you look at other moments in history where very, very problematic leaders have led societies and those entire societies have fallen, humanity mm-hmm. has kept going. That's what I was saying earlier. We yeah. land on our feet eventually. Absolutely. Whatever the problem is, we land on our feet. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm trying to... Now, it doesn't mean that we don't fight and we don't protest and we don't you know, try and stop all those things. But I think also what what separates, um, what separates uh, the the intelligent response to these things is the ability to zoom out a little bit and say, um, you know, these, these things tend to work on a pendulum and the pendulum has swung hard in one direction. Um, but if history tells us anything, the pendulum swings back. Um, boy, but <laughs> what I like to do is come into a podcast mm-hmm. and just talk about popcorn subjects. I don't like to really get into anything. No, deep, no, we're, so, we're, yeah. we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're we're Titanic levels under the ocean right now. I um, I'm just going to share my my honest yeah. belief, and then we can get back to popcorn. True. Sure. Sure. Uh, I think the forest has to burn down. Yeah. I don't think there's any way to stop this fire. Uh, I do a lot of reading on World War II, and yeah. it's kind of beat for beat. Yeah. And I I don't doubt that you may be right. Um, but but Germany's doing okay. I yep. mean, they kind of got their asses handed to them at the World Cup, but other than that, they're doing much better than right. 1942. <laughs> right. Well, we, we've hit religion, we've hit politics, we've, we've hit just about every like no-no subject yeah. that you could possibly have, but I'm ready to take it even deeper hit and, me. Um, yeah, and say, um, I, I think one of the easy things to fall into is to become these armchair philosophers, you know, mm-hmm. about these issues, which is great. I love doing it. But if we do it to the peril of what does today hold from mm-hmm. me and what should I be out there doing today? Uh, how am I trying to um, find meaning in my, my story, you know, today? Then I think we've missed something. That's, I guess that's the big question on my mind is uh, how can we leverage the potential empathy derived from storytelling to best yeah. better our, our society? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Because it seems to be something that occupies your mind a fair bit. <laughs> it, it occupies my mind a great deal. One of the things um, I'm privileged to do is, is to go around the world and talk about story. And one of the, the talks, one of my favorite talks that I give is this idea of telling a better story. And it's even what I've called my website is telling a better story. And what that comes from is the last few years, I've tried to go back and do research 
and find all the times in history that I possibly can where a story has actually changed dramatically a culture. I'll give you one or two that's examples. A, that's a good little bit of archaeology you're doing. <laughs> I feel like me. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so, that's a very important reason. It is. So uh, I'll give you one of the more recent ones. For 2,000 years, the Chinese bound the feet of their women. Mm-hmm. And most people are somewhat familiar with Chinese foot binding. They're familiar with the lotus shoe. It was actually a really horrific practice where they broke the bones of the foot of the woman to to get it to go into the lotus shoe in that way. Now, is this what to what end? Yeah, I'll tell you to what end. Okay. It had zero to do with the woman mm-hmm. and had everything to do with the husband. If your wife had bound feet, it meant that you were wealthy enough she didn't need to go work in the field. Ah, uh, okay. So you have this really horrific practice that is 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 the status symbol. A status symbol. It's a of Gucci bag. Massive patriarchy yeah. status symbol. Um, so this goes on for two thousand years. Pearl S. Buck in the early part of the last century writes a book called The Good Earth. Most people have to read it in high school. In The Good Earth, there's a character who has her feet bound. She's not the main character. It's not even a point of the story. But there's this character in the book. The book becomes a massive global hit. Mm -hmm. All around the world, the book is read. And it starts a conversation where people start asking the question, are they still doing that? Are they still binding women's feet? Well, the the Chinese society at the time, very proud society, very uh, easily embarrassed by things. And... Within one generation, within a 40-year period, the practice completely stops. It completely ends this horrific practice. Millennia. Millennia. It's the power of one story yep. changing a culture. I, I, I've, I could go on you know, for the next three hours telling you stories throughout history. Give us history. one more because it's okay. way too much fun to listen okay. to. All right. All right. So here's, here's one other one that I okay. think is super powerful. India. New Delhi, early 1980s. The people of India are are going through very, very difficult times. And someone in the government has the the, the great idea that we should take one of our myths, one of our legends, and we should should, uh, uh, create a television show out of it. Mm -hmm. So they they take one of their books of wisdom uh, from the Mahabharata, and it's, they, they take this section that we refer to as the Bhagavad Gita, and they decide we're going to make a television show. So they create this television show, and they have enough to do six episodes. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've ever seen this story, it, it would be like trying to do the entire Bible for Westerners in six half-hour episodes. It's, it's a big, yeah, big ask, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're going to so, be cutting some stuff. Yeah, so they've got six episodes. Within... Weeks, once the second episode has come out, it becomes a cultural phenomenon in India. People begin structuring their entire lives around Tuesday nights when this thing airs. Mm -hmm. Some villages, there's only one television in the whole village. The entire town gathers and watches this. This is the story of our people. Mm -hmm. After the sixth episode runs, and they're only a little ways into the story... The government's out of money. There's no more money to make these things. People lose it. 
in New Delhi, the sanitation workers get together and say, we're going to try and help solve this. We're going to stop picking up the trash until the government government funds funds more of this story. Trash starts piling high in the streets of New Delhi. Trash on top of trash. This goes on. There is a public health crisis arising in New Delhi over this issue of this story, right? Eventually, the government caves. They said, we, we, we can't, we got to give yeah, in. Yeah, you know? yeah, So they started creating more episodes of the show. The show still runs on Indian television today. Here, so here's my request to you. Don't you dare let any executive know about that story or they will be saying, <laughs> I want a show that's so good, the entire country revolts when this first season is done. <laughs> but but th- this is the power of a yeah. story is, is that... It has the power time stops. to, yeah, yeah, time stops. A culture can change. And so my question, you know, to to us as individuals, to us as cultures, as nations, are we capable of a better story? I'm not really interested in the business anymore of what's a good story and what's a bad story, because that's different for every person. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's tough to say, you know, a good story for you may be a bad story for me. Uh, we, we have different things in life, but I think we're all capable of a better story. I even take this down to my personal writing. Once I finish the first draft of a script, mm-hmm. I ask myself, what would make this a better story? And that sounds really simple, but it's profound. I, I have another a version of that. It's what would I rather watch than what's happening right now? That's the question. That's the question. That, that to me, gets at the heart of... of, of what I need is a person yeah, in, yeah. in this story. And that wisdom has served me really well. I've made huge changes to stories because I say, you know, it would be a much better story if this guy's uh, lover that he depended on for everything died. Yep. You know, you know just How- the, those things. <laughs> How it's it's such a it's such a strange emotion when that happens because I'm so excited for the new idea and so pissed at myself for having missed it for a year sometimes three years yeah. before oh wait what the f- I was I thinking not doing this thing right right it's it, yeah, yeah yeah it's it's tempered the the excitement it is, is it is, is humbled I I have found it's almost a philosophy and way of life for me now mm-hmm. is what's a better story. What, how can I tell a better story with my life, with the life of my community, with the life of my you know culture, even just little things in life? Like if I see someone has dumped uh, some garbage on the side of the road and I take 10 minutes to stop and pick that stuff up, mm-hmm. I'm telling a better story with my community, you know? And here's, I, I am always fighting entropy. That's yeah. like my sworn yeah. battle. And that's a, that's a good yeah. way to fight entropy <laughs> is to pick up trash on the street. Let's do it. Pick one. All right, here we Let's go. Let's see. I'm going to try to not bump the mic stand. Oh, here don't even bother I'm... trying. You okay. can't. Here we go. Nobody wins that. Nobody wins it. What you got there? All right. What is the most trouble you ended, you endured with your parents or ended with your parents? What is the most what is trouble the most you trouble? Let is me it, see that Make one. sure I'm reading that correctly. You endured with your parents, no question mark. Okay, all right. I always, I love picking up <laughs> spelling, punctuation, and grammar. What is the most trouble? Yeah. Were yeah. you a bad kid? Were you a good kid? I think you might have had a bit of a, where'd you grow up though? You know, I grew up in East Texas. You, and you did something wrong I, in know, those 12 first years. I left Texas when I found out I could. 
Um, 16, 18? No, I was 20, but that was just as soon as I could get out of there. Um, I was a really good kid, actually. I was a really good kid. I did not get in uh, much trouble at all. I'm trying to even think, um, you know, up until I was 12, um, you know... I had two brothers. I have okay. two brothers. They're still with okay. us. Um, I have two brothers. And um, the most trouble I ever remember getting into, in East Texas, it gets insanely hot outside. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-old boys, we wanted to um, we wanted to be active and play sports. But you just didn't want to go outside. So we invented a game called Indoor Baseball. And we had this little bat, mm-hmm. and the the ball would be really whatever we could find that had enough weight and substance to it that we could hit it, and we would play indoor baseball. And one day, nothing seemed um, nothing seemed heavy enough to serve as the baseball, and so we uh, we used a real baseball. All right, and um, let's just say that. Uh, There was a a glass cabinet in the the living room that is no longer with us as a result. This is exactly when the person decides to buy. When you're telling the story, the brain is thinking, where is this going? And building their own (laughs) endings to it. And it becomes my own. Like, this is my story now. I don't know where you're going. It doesn't really matter because I've written like five endings. Anyway, please. No, but this is how storytelling works. And this is one of the things you do in a story is you build to this moment and you've got to leave the pauses where somebody says, oh, oh, I wonder if it's this. Yeah, yeah. you you didn't sell the thing. I got the idea to buy it (laughs) on this one. All right, so you're playing baseball indoors with a real baseball and there's a glass cabinet. Please continue. It's, It's no longer with us. And so the the story gets a little better uh, mm-hmm. from here in that um, we we break the cabinet. My mother is not home, and the one thing she had told us to do is that day I was supposed to help my brother with my time with his times tables, mm-hmm. and I decided at that moment, you know, the only way that I'm going to perhaps get in less trouble about breaking this class is perhaps if I go ahead and do the one thing yep. she had asked me to do. So immediately the baseball came, game comes to a violent end at this point, and immediately I transition my youngest brother into times table. Yep, so yep, he's got yep. these practice times tables, and he needs to be timed. He needs to be able to do all these problems in two minutes. Okay. We don't have a timer except on the microwave. Well, I knew from the little bit of knowledge I had at that point that you do not just run the microwave without yep. something yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. At this point, I don't even know if microwaves had just timers on it. You actually yeah, had to run yeah, yeah, the microwave, yeah. right? So I went and uh, I got a, a glass out of the cabinet and I filled it halfway full of water. See, now we're completely off the rails. I have no idea where this one's going. And I put that glass in the microwave mm-hmm. for 10 minutes, which is how long <laughs> he's got. I did not realize that water enters a gelatinous state uh, after about 10 minutes. But after 10 minutes, um, uh, I took the water out. My brother had finished his timetables. And 
for some reason, the very presence of the devil must have risen up inside me. And I called my brother over to the sink and said, hey, put your hand over the sink. What the f- <laughs> is wrong with you? It's one of my greatest regrets to this day, the, uh, uh, the, the second-degree burns that were left yeah. on his hands yeah. uh, it, from pouring Did they the have to graft water. other skin on, or was well, it... Well, it... it uh, Fortunately, I didn't pour much uh, on. But, I guess um, he would jump back after. A- yeah, it, it's it's something that ends really quickly, um, and so my mother had to come home from work um, to to deal with this situation of not only you know had we broken this glass cabinet. Oh, that's but, in the um, rear view at this point. Yeah, you but have uh, I, I have permanently perhaps permanently scarred, scarred yeah. my my brother. So that was the most trouble that I ever endured. With my parents. Yeah, I think you earned it on that one. <laughs> if that was meant to call out a story, there's a story for you. That's uh, that's, that's yeah. what happened. Yeah, yeah my, <laughs> I can't even come close to that one. That's off the off the charts. Because I was perfect. What are people like back home? <laughs> what are people like back home? Well, I think you have to answer first the question, where is back home? You still calling it East Texas, or I, is I, this your I, home I, now? I I call this home, but when I say back home, mm-hmm. we're referring to Texas. How are they holding up? Are they? Uh, yeah. Where are they on this on this uh, this Trump? Yeah. So are they still all in? Well, you know, here's the thing. Um, my father and my youngest brother, whose hand I, I mm-hmm. uh, damaged. Um, they moved to Los Angeles uh, uh, in the last 10 years, and so they, they live out here now, and they are very much uh, on the anti-Trump train. Okay. Uh, I have a middle brother who lives in Austin, Texas, and uh, in the People's Republic of Austin, you do not support Trump under any circumstances, and so he's he's even further to the left okay. uh, than any of them. My mother, on the other hand... Um, deeply desires there be no conflict in the world. And so when the um, current president was elected, um, her biggest interest was everyone just accepting and being happy with, with this new outcome. And um, That's where I was. Day yeah. one, that's exactly where I was. Really? Was, let's, let's give it a shot. I was not able to, to be there at that place, and neither were my brothers. And so we, we had some uh, really intense um, phone conversations the day after the election uh, in our family. And we, we've since come to a much better place, but um, it, it got really ugly there for a moment. Here's the way I was thinking about that was try to imagine, for example, if, you're, if your dad was a ferocious drunk, yeah. just putting that on as a hypothetical. And he never made good on any of it. He never had a conversation with you. He never tried to stop drinking. He dies and you never got to say, like, I just love you. I know that whatever it was, whatever was inside you, I love you for who you are. I don't hate you for who you're not. Yeah. That's what I was thinking at during the election was like, if I want to stand by my ideals, I have to be open to this person that I'm diametrically opposed to, mm-hmm. or I'll regret it forever. If I don't even bother entertain, like giving this whole thing a chance, then that's on me. That's not on anyone else. Yeah. It's, that's yeah. my responsibility. That's yeah. not, not my dad's responsibility yeah. in that situation. That's beautiful. I'm glad so. you could, you could be at that, uh, that enlightened place. I, 
on the other uh, hand was outside screaming at the moon with hot tears rolling down my cheeks. <laughs> I was I was not in a good place. I I I'll totally respect that. Now I'm and I say that adamantly and sincerely and I'm also the one in this conversation who said I think we're headed into the apocalypse. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think there's any. I honestly, in my heart, don't believe yeah. there's any solution but to let the whole forest burn down yeah. and plant some new trees. Like, there's no yeah. way to stop this forest fire at this point. Right, right. There's no dynamite that we can just yeah. con, con, confine it at all. Anyway, so that's where I'm at. <laughs> well, what it, the hell was the question? What are people like back home? I, I'll, I'll say this. Hit me. Um, in, interestingly enough. Um, I have come to a, a place because, you know, there are people in my family that I deeply love that mm-hmm. that uh, see this issue so very differently than I do. Um, I I have to reconcile that somehow. Yeah. I yeah. can't I can't just hold that disassociative you know position of um, I I. Not even going to. I, I'm not going to put those people out of my life, and at the same time, I cannot abide what they stand for. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I find it a daily exercise to um, engage and try to uh, hold to the core of my own beliefs, and at the same time, hold as much empathy as I can for those who would feel different, and try and defeat evil wherever possible because I think it's not just enough uh, to empathize with the other side. We, when people are suffering and in pain, we have to actually try and stop that in whatever ways that we can. Absolutely, absolutely. Quoth Leonard Cohen, love is the only engine of survival. Yeah, yeah. And if you're not loving the people that you hate, then you're (laughs) you're missing the whole point. Well, and and to to, to quote a, a, a... line from the most recent uh, Star Wars, you know, we're we're not going to win uh, by fighting what we hate. What we hate, we're going to win by saving what we love. And I think that yep. is a profound, profound yep. statement. Um, I'm not going to spend my time uh, only fighting that which I think is evil. Um, although I will spend time with that because otherwise the the destruction the wildfire is too far out of hand not to do that with I'm some not of our saying time. do nothing yeah. I am not saying Agree do nothing with you. do yeah. not twist my words yeah. at all yeah I know um, but if all <laughs> let me say it like this I'll, I'll say it in a better with a better it. metaphor um, I have a lot of friends here in Los Angeles that are vegetarians mm-hmm. I've watched enough documentaries I think they're right. I think they're totally right that I probably will not live as long as they do because I eat meat. Mm-hmm. I have a great deal of difficulty aligning myself with any cause that only defines itself by what it's against. And that, I think, is the great danger we could fall into is only becoming people that are united by being against Trump or whatever he stands for. That's meaningless. Have, yeah, that's meaningless. That's meaningless to be anti yeah. anything. That's it. We have to. We You've have created to be, a bigger void, and the void is the problem, that's it. not the solution. That's it. We have to be about something. Yes. And what we're about can be bigger than what he's about. And to me, 
there's there's not enough energy being put in those areas and i get it we're still sort of many we're people reeling, are still but, reeling yeah. from you know the the shock and every day it's something new and we're we're we are burning calories on it it's <laughs> very expensive in in the calorie department every absolutely. day every day yeah. and again it's easy to say why are these guys just going off about politics this is at the heart of story story is about the battle between good and evil and right and wrong and marginalized people and heroes and villains. And this is all at the core of what good storytelling is about. And if we don't engage it in our day-to-day world and talk about what story we're living out, we can't understand it in a fictional level. Your pick. All right. I really like that. The only reason I'm dinging is because, dude, you're going to do it. I'm so pissed off right now. I, I, I'm working so hard not to do it. It's a colossal disappointment from the bottom of my heart. How would you like to be remembered? Oh, oh, how would I like to be remembered? Yeah. I, I hope I am uh, creating creating things that ease the suffering of others. Mm. If that's if that's it, if that's all I do in my life, then I will have lived better than than I thought I would live when I was a child. It's beautiful, man. Yes. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. What, what have you got? Top that. Uh, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> this is a competition <laughs> right. now. I, if it were said of me that I was kind, mm-hmm. that would be enough. Okay. That that would be enough. I, I think you're kind. Appreciate that. I appreciate that. I do. I, I, I was played as a joke, but I do no. think you seem to you seem to have a good heart inside. No, I you. appreciate it. I, I you have I, a temper. Do you ever? Do you, you know, like what's the other side of the coin that I'm not <laughs> seeing right now? No, you know, I'm not someone uh, who has deep struggles with anger, you know, or, or a temper. Um, I do think a healthy person um, is in touch with their, their own anger and can, over the right things, they can get mad, they can get upset. And there are things in this world that make me upset. And I am someone who, who roots for the underdog. I will always be on the side of the marginalized. And when I see people taken advantage of, when I see people bullied, I get angry. And I well, think it's no, a healthy you, anger. I, the anger you just described was anguish. Well, I, I th- in yourself, mine and in those goes that over to ang- anger uh, because, I, and I'm not saying it's always healthy uh, yeah. to you know let it get there. Although I do think it's healthy um, to let anguish turn into anger. It, it then becomes what do you do with it? Yeah, you know? if, if anger is the end of the yeah. story, you've you've uh, told a very. You, you forgot your third act. Well, it, it, this is true. And, you know, I'm someone who's very open about the fact that I go to uh, therapy on a regular basis. And I, I really believe in that because for years I was someone who was raised to believe we don't express anger. That's bad. And so finding ways to have healthy expressions of anger to let other people know you've made me angry mm-hmm. and to do that in a healthy way. Um, that's been part of my own development that has has been life-giving for me because when anger is bottled up like that, it typically, for me at least, it turns into depression. And I have a family history of depression, and I try my best not to keep anger bottled up, but to find healthy ways to deal with it. It doesn't always mean telling the person I'm angry at, but Mm -hmm. I, I have to find healthy ways to express anger when I experience it because we all do. 
I've got a question, and it's a very pointed question, and it seems to be one that might become the overarching question of all this whole program. Not this episode, but I mean the whole fishbowl is uh, depression, it manifests as a very like inert thing. Mm-hmm. It's But the internal experience is incredibly animated, I think, mm-hmm. for worse, not for better, but... How, how, what is your internal experience? Like it all looks the same. Every depressed person kind of plays the same on camera, (laughs) but what's happening inside is, is there's no two experiences that are the same. So what is, what is, when depression, when depression manifests inside of you, how is, what is that experience like for you? Yeah. For me, it is a despair that can only be compared to stone, that there will be no change. This that I'm experiencing right now will be this forever. This stone that is setting on top of my heart will remain and there is no wind strong enough to blow it away. There is is no force that is great enough to push it off of my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, you know, one thing I've gotten better at is taking a step back in those moments and finding ways to remind myself that I feel this way right now. I won't always feel this way. I won't always feel this way. And it doesn't always work. I'll be no, honest no, with no, you. No, 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 no. Because that's like the the meanest trick of depression is yeah. that it, it plays as permanent. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the hardest part. And for me, that metaphor that I see is just this giant stone. It's, okay. it's immovable. Yep, yep, yep. That all tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, th- this is... This is a whole nother podcast episode. But, oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I do believe... Um, a lot of my interest right now has been in the relationship between uh, technology and depression. And am I, am I causing my depression to uh, play out in ways it never has before due to my relationship with technology? Um, or am I causing my uh, d- depression to... Um, run in an organic, natural sense. And I'll give you an example of that. Yeah, yeah, I think that would help yeah. at this point. I have had to limit myself to only checking the news on my phone once per day because I I was every 10 minutes yep. re, hitting refresh on CNN.com to see What's the latest? What's, you know, what's, what now? What do we got to do now? now? And, and it was causing, it was beginning to interfere with my ability just to live healthy. Yep. And so my relationship with technology there for a number of months was my depression became much more acute in those times because of my relationship with technology. I had the ability to take my phone out at any second and find out exactly what the latest is going on, you know, right now. Yeah. And that was a problem and I've never had you also had, had the before. ability to not do that, but well, you didn't. But I didn't. Yeah. And so I, I I had to recognize I couldn't yeah. not do it until I recognized this is not healthy for me. I've got to stop yep. doing this. Yep. And yep. so I, I allow myself to do it once a day and... You know, that takes discipline. Not everyone can do that. It was difficult for me, you know, to to want to do it. I've gotten it down to once a day. And at this point, I'm just like, I don't even want to do it. I know it's something. It's <laughs> right, going to be something. Right, right. And it was something. Right. The, the the Supreme Court <laughs> right. justice retired. He's like, oh, God, do we need this right now? <laughs> right. Can't you do three more years? Right, right. 
that that's the thing is it's always going to be something so one of the 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 great truths and this is a truth of of storytelling it's so important stories not just to tell about the truths we've heard about but the truths that we've experienced ourselves mm-hmm. and that we know to be true because we experienced them and one of the truths i have experienced and i know to be true is that i cannot change all that stuff that's happening in Washington or the world. I can change how I relate to it, how I deal with it, how I respond to it. I have a lot of agency when it comes yeah. to my own ability to to deal with it. But I have to exercise it. I have to, to not be lazy, and I have to exercise that agency. But I can, in a sense, build... Um, build parts of my psyche that deal with that uh, in better ways. Now, I'll also say part of that is um, is because of my privilege. I'm someone who, when I leave your place today and walk out and get in my car, if a policeman stops me, I don't have to worry about, is that policeman going to shoot me? Um, I'm someone that if I go into to pitch tomorrow in a Hollywood studio, I don't have to worry, are these men going to take me seriously? Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah. My race, my gender, my sexual orientation, I am the, the most privileged person you'll ever meet because of all these things. And... I have the privilege to consider these things in a much different way where many people don't have that choice and that option. Um, and I think that's an important thing to recognize about yourself if you find yourself in that camp. Yep. I will say this. Uh, you have made a case for middle-class straight white males. Yeah. Going in... <laughs> no, come on. Like, you're doing a series on screenwriting and it's like, you know... Absolutely. The pool is 90% middle class straight white males. Well, well, but it's, can I just say? Yeah. Um, I feel like one of the most important parts of my work is speaking to straight middle class white males because nobody has more credibility with them than I do. And so I feel like in the ways that I, I teach screenwriting and the ways that I teach writing and the ways that I speak and the way... I can actually have more influence in in creating that world that I want. And it's my responsibility. We shouldn't be asking marginalized and oppressed people to be the ones to change this narrative. We should be the ones standing up and saying, yeah, you know what? We've been in the role of the oppressor, but no more. We're going to change this narrative. And it's not just enough for us to accept the role of the oppressor, but us to also say, okay, so what's our new story? What are we going to be now? Well, that's, I think that goes back to the, uh, I'm, I'm kind of being, I, I've been mean to uh, aspiring non-writers. Yeah. Uh, but I, I honestly believe that a lot of people are, haven't been given permission. Yeah. And when you do those adjustments to behavior, if you do them well and do them correctly, you, you, other people might take it as permission to adjust their behavior that's too. Right. And that's, I think that's, that's, right. that's a, a worthwhile pursuit. It's huge. It's so, huge. Let's round it out there. Let's let everybody go go write something. All you <laughs> Keep telling your stories. They're important. Yeah. We need them in this world. We really do. And thank you. Thank you. Let's do the closing music. All Are you right, ready? Here we it. go. Hit me. Thank you so much for tuning into the Hollywood Fishbowl. I'm Jesse Kester, your host. And I'm John Booker. I've been here telling a better story with Jesse. And, uh, thank you. Thank you for jumping in. We're going to 
tell you some Twitter handles, maybe some Instagram handles. You can find us at HWFishbowl on both of those wonderful social media platforms. Mr. John Booker, where can they find you? On Twitter, find me at John, J-O-H-N-K-B-U-C-H-E-R. And on Instagram, at Telling a Better Story. Or check out my website, tellingabetterstory.com. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come over. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you better, to get your, to know your ideas better. And I, I hope that, um, I honestly hope that, that if there's any takeaway, it's that, the, that if you're thinking about doing something better than you can be doing right now, just go ahead and do it. We're giving you permission. I'm going to give the last word to you, Mr. John Booker. We're so glad you could tune in. We're so glad you were a part of our story today. Remember, be kind to yourself and be kind to others.